1: The world drawdown is used in multiple fields from banking to investing but for today's episode the most important use of the word is in climatology climate drawdown is the point at which greenhouse gas concentrations begin to decline on a year to year basis in order to reach carbon neutrality the United States still has taken many steps to achieve drawdown but there are many teams of brilliant scientists across the country that are putting solutions on the table to make that goal attainable one of those brilliant scientists is my guest today, Dr. Marilyn Brown from the Georgia Institute of Technology, better known as Georgia Tech. Dr. Brown, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
0: Uh, good morning, Marshall. Now,
1: this is a, a special guest in that she's clearly one of the top experts in the world on the topics that we're going to be discussing today, and I I want to uh, get you to her as soon as possible. But before I you hear from Professor Brown, I want to just set the stage with some of her qualifications. She's the Regents and Brooke Byers Professor of Sustainable Systems in the School of Public Policy at Georgia Tech and has been in that role since 2006. In that role, she leads the Climate and Energy Policy Laboratory, which focuses on sustainable energy and environmental management. Prior to Georgia Tech, she also worked at the U.S. Department of Energy's Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and I want to get into some of what she did there in that role. Uh, uh, In general, she led some of the national climate change mitigation studies and became a leader in analysis and interpretation Interpretation of Energy Futures. Listen to this. In 2010 and 2018, she was appointed by President Barack Obama to the Board of Directors of the Tennessee Valley Authority. There are many other things that I want to share about Professor Brown, but before we do that, there's a question we always ask every Weather Geeks guest. How did you get into your field of study? Is it something you always wanted to do or did you sort of find your way into it?
0: I found my way into uh, the study of climate mitigation from an interest in energy ah, okay. uh, I grew up during the um, Arab oil embargo period in the 1970s and I saw that the United States was being held hostage to other nations our um, economy was coming to a standstill lots of inconveniences and you know I wanted to know what I could do about it ah, see. so energy and then clean energy and then clean air and then uh, Climate mitigation is right. the next step.
1: Right, right. What about even before that, as as a, as a young student, uh, maybe even grad school or undergrad, were you? Did you see that path then, or?
0: I always knew it's going to be in sciences. Okay. You know, like. Grandfather was an astronomer, oh, wow. and my father was a chemist, and you know all the uh, scientists were surrounding me, and there was nothing I could do about it. So it was just a matter of picking a field, right? right?
1: And so I, I, I to sort of that field. She has a PhD in geography from, uh, I believe, Ohio State University. Yes. Is that right? And then I also know that you have a master's degree in regional planning. So does my wife, by the way, uh, from the University of Massachusetts, and a bachelor's in political science from Rutgers University. So you've been at the of fighting climate change for a long time and also enhancing energy efficiency solutions. Um, Now you're leading an effort here in Georgia called Georgia Drawdown, and I I happen to be a a colleague of yours and a a partner on that project. Before we get into Georgia Drawdown, give the listeners of Weather Geeks an overview of the broader Drawdown project and book that uh, we are sort of working from or inspired by, if you will.
0: Yes. Uh, two years ago, Paul Hawken edited a book that was published that identified 100 solutions that could be used around the globe to achieve carbon neutrality or carbon drawdown. And these were uh, a tra- the combination of very traditional kind of engineering approaches, reducing refrigerant uh, leakage and making uh, cars and buildings more efficient, etc. And then some novel and some unconventional approaches such as educating women and um, increasing diets, making diets more plant-rich. So we really were impressed by those 100 solutions and wanted to know which of those would fit as a solution set for the state of Georgia.
1: Right. And from what I understand being a part of the project but also the National Climate Assessment, which is the government mandates um, uh, an assessment of our climate every year. This was passed in the second Bush administration, I believe, under that Congress. And the National Climate Assessment has sort of mentioned some of these needs for mitigation studies, for adaptation studies. Um, Drawdown that you just described is what I guess we call in our world a a mitigation strategy, if you were to box it, as opposed to an adaptation strategy, which is climate change is happening. We need to change the way we do things or adapt to them. Uh, From your view, as someone who has worked in government and also in academia, do you feel that mitigation is the only strategy, or does it need to be a basket of both mitigation and adaptation approaches?
0: Yeah, I think it's got to be a basket. It's taken uh, the world a long time to get to that perspective, we had uh, the developed world trying to figure out how to reduce their emissions. And we had the developing world trying to figure out how to handle the extreme climate events and and growing heat waves and weather disasters from the increasing concentrations of greenhouse gases. So we had sort of two fields emerging, and now they're um, trying to figure out how to work together. So you... Um, try to uh, you know, reduce as effectively as possible, while at the same time uh, converting your current institutional infrastructure and other uh, investments into more resonant and more resilient and uh, st- you know, stronger. Infrastructures
1: And after our first break, I want to get more into Georgia drawdown, but I want to stay at a high level here before we sort of bore down into Georgia drawdown, because I know you recently wrote an, an op ed or an opinion piece on the Green New Deal. Talk about what you wrote in that and what your main point was from that, that piece, which I read. It was a very provocative piece. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Well, there is a myth that we can't tackle the environmental problems of the day. Without bankrupting the economy, and I wanted to speak to how many mitigation um, technologies are good investments. They're um, they pay back. They create new business opportunities and they create jobs. So the Green New Deal, uh, I modeled using a. Um, sophisticated general equilibrium dynamic. Uh, I won't go I, this into is weather geeks, so We love geeky <laughs>
1: terms like that. That's why we call it weather geeks. But yeah, very sophisticated numerical and quantitative modeling I would have based on data, I imagine. It's
0: actually uh, the same model that the Department of Energy uses in its annual forecast okay. of what energy prices and consumption are likely to be in the future we inserted a carbon tax Ah. of uh, $25 per per ton carbon emitted. So you're putting a price now on the emissions from your consumption of goods that perhaps involve uh, the combustion of fossil fuels or embody the use of fossil fuels in them. And um, that does cause a shift to lower fossil fuel Um, generation on the electricity side, less uh, fossil fuel use um, for cars and industry, and whenever there's less use, GDP often does drop. However, at the same time, there is a need to invest and it it precipitates new uh, products and a greater focus on reducing energy consumption. The big winner there are jobs from energy efficiency. Aha, okay. You don't really um, employ many people when you're generating electricity or uh, even in the oil and gas industry. It's not labor intensive, but energy efficiency is. So right. the moment you change from a production to focus on consumption, you have jobs as a big um secondary benefit. Right. So that was, what, that was the produ- provocative part of my uh, And I my thought paper. so. And
1: I, and I wanted to mention that because we are hearing all types of versions of the Green New Deal, and it's, it's getting sort of a lot of traction um, for those that are uh, for it and against it, if you will. I know in your work, you focus heavily on accelerating development and deployment of sustainable energy technologies. That's something that you're known for. Uh, are there any particular technologies that you think that would have the most impact they're the least impact or, the, or even easy to implement on broad scales just from your work over the years?
0: Well, I'd like to um, highlight some of the technologies that you and I can install and deploy, and uh, they can make a big difference. Of course, the um, use of solid-state lighting you know, LEDs mm-hmm. to replace we should nobody should have an incandescent bulb in their house anymore right, I agree right? so yeah, that yeah.
1: sort of so that's, <laughs> that's if you're listening out there do an assessment <laughs> of your home today and see what kind of bulbs you have and get those things changed out
0: and it pays for itself you know you wouldn't you, you earn much more from the energy saved by converting to higher a, a more efficient lighting than you do say putting your money in the bank right and, you know, so it's a good investment right um, and then you can move to other parts of your home. You've got uh, the opportunity, for instance, for a heat pump water heater, uh, highly efficient. It, the more we have of these, the fewer plants we need to build in the future, right? So, uh, high efficiency air conditioners. We have air conditioners now with coefficients of performance that are out off the charts. Yes, yes. And we have a lot of advances. And so, science is, in fact moving us along nicely to a more sustainable future but we have to spend our money wisely to kind of prod that along.
1: Yeah, this is something I've actually even been thinking about in the home that when I moved back to Georgia from the Washington, D.C. area, I've been in that home about 15 years now, and I've been talking to my wife because I said, you know, I bet we should update our air conditioning and and heating system because I'm pretty sure there's a lot more efficient uh, models out there right now, given some of the things that I I talk about. I want to set up drawdown, a Georgia drawdown. Can you just talk about, and then after the break, we'll talk a little bit more How did Georgia Drawdown get started? Who's funding it and
0: why? It got started um, as a result of conversations between the Racy Anderson Foundation uh, leadership and individuals whom you know from the three main prominent universities that are engaged in this, the University of Georgia, Emory University, and Georgia Tech. We were all talking about what could be done. This was about two years ago. And um, the notion of using Project Drawdown, just recently published at a global scale, and seeing what it meant for Georgia, emerged as a, a wise way to proceed, Why not um, leverage that work and and go from there? (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes.
1: There really is no place like home. on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm speaking with Professor Marilyn Brown. Uh, Dr. Brown is one of the world's experts in energy and climate policy. I I was actually familiar with uh, Marilyn Brown before I ever ever met her because I know she's done some great work. Uh, I I gave you some of her credentials as we led into the podcast, but I want to give you a few more. She co-founded and previously chaired the Southeast Energy Efficiency Alliance, uh, has served on boards of multiple climate mitigation-focused committees through her career. She's a co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007 for her work on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC report, Uh, and she's authored more than 250, I'm going to say that again, 250 publications. Uh, For those of you that are not in the uh, academic world, and many of you aren't, that's an incredible number of publication. So that means she's incredibly um, productive scholar, one that's sought out. And so we're glad to have her on weather geeks Now, we were talking about Georgia drawdown and you were talking about how the Ray C. Anderson foundation, shout out to the Ray C. Anderson foundation uh, that uh, really is putting their money where their mouth is in terms of moving the needle forward in the state of Georgia is Georgia drawdown unique uh, to the, are other States doing things like this? Or is this an area where Georgia's leading?
0: I believe that uh, Georgia is exhibiting leadership here that's unparalleled across the country. Other states have taken different approaches. So it's not as though there's inaction, but we're the only state that is using this particular model and trying to see how much we can benefit from it and make it fit. Right, that makes sense. Yeah. And so
1: I, I know being involved in this project for the last year or so, there, there's In progress. What are some of the sort of big milestones for the project so far? And we're we're taping this in mid-February, so I I can't guarantee exactly when you're listening to this, but I know that there's some milestones, but then there's some goals ahead. So what are your milestones so far?
0: One of my favorite milestones is that we updated the carbon footprint of the state of Georgia. That was the first thing we did. Um, It's important to know what's being emitted by um, which sectors of the economy in order to identify the you know, most promising ways to reduce those emissions. So we uh, were able to document that the uh, state of Georgia emits about 130 million tons of CO2 a year. Wow. And it, uh, its forests and agricultural soils absorb about 30. Now these are numbers that could change a little bit, but what I love about those two numbers is that you take 130 and you subtract 30 and you get a carbon footprint of 100 million tons of CO2. It's easy to remember. And you can begin to think about chunks then. What can get you a million uh, ton reduction or one more million uh, absorbed in our forests or soils? And then you're at a 1% benefit, and we are using that as a um, sort of a threshold. We can't do everything, so we're not going to talk about the little small things um, that don't amount to that. But instead, we're looking at these one million dollar 1 million ton a unit. Sure. Yeah.
1: And so you heard Dr. Brown talk about sort of forests and soils. Just a little geek out here which we like to do from time to time because we are scientists. Uh, you might have heard or maybe you aren't familiar with this term biogeochemical cycles but there are biogeochemical cycles in the same way that there are water cycles. And I know we learn about water cycles in 4th grade. Uh, my 7th grader probably hasn't heard too much about biogeochemical cycles but carbon is one of the carbon cycle is one of them. And in a carbon cycle, there are sources of carbon and there are sinks of carbon. And so forestry and soils tend to be important sinks, as you heard Dr. Brown talk about. So Georgia Drawdown now is breaking out, I believe, into groups or these baskets of working groups and trying to find what solutions are going to be applicable to Georgia. And I know you had a rollout event, I guess, maybe in the fall or late. it was actually in the winter, I believe. And you started rolling out at least some of what you're thinking there. Can you give us a little bit more
0: on where, where that is? Yes, indeed. Uh, we succeeded in taking the 100 uh, possible solutions from Project Drawdown and uh, down selecting to 22 is our current number. So they do span five sectors of the economy from electricity generation to transportation, the built environment, forestry, and food systems. And within each of those five sectors, we've picked four or five of the top solutions. So just to, to list a few of them, in transportation, energy-efficient cars, and energy-efficient trucks, right. but also electrification of cars and trucks. I,
1: I, and I, I i think you probably drove here in a car that's at least somewhat electric, uh, as I recall. Uh,
0: yep, it's a battery electric, yes. all electric. Plugged it in last night, exactly. just to be sure I could get you here know, in case I and, got lost. And I got
1: here in a hybrid. <laughs> I haven't taken the full plunge yet, but uh, yeah, I, th- I think the, and I think those are three that sort mm-hmm, of probably mm-hmm. are intuitive to people, but they're still important parts of the basket. Are, well, what are some of the ones that maybe
0: surprise people? Well, alternative mobility. So that's uh, sort of the first mile, last mile. Uh, how do you get there how do you um walking and scooting and biking you know all these alternatives to the automobile and another one in transportation that might surprise you is aviation groundwork so how do you move planes and people around at airports right and the port of savannah right yeah so um,
1: yeah. So mm-hmm. the transportation, clearly, some surprising and some not so surprising answers. You also mentioned buildings, or I guess the, uh, I guess environment and materials and electricity mm-hmm, generation, mm-hmm. food systems. Tell us about some of the sort of more interesting ones there that people might be surprised to hear about.
0: Um, in, in electricity generation, uh, your um, uh, listeners might be surprised that wind is not on the list. Not yet. Uh, it's exactly not on the list. Right. That might be the big surprise. I think that's right. We are looking at only what can be done over the next decade. You know, we want to uh, try to promote this notion that there's a lot we can do right now. And for the state of Georgia, um, we do not have any offshore wind under development. Getting wind. Deep into um, the state of Georgia at the heights that would be needed in order to be cost effective um, is too costly. So, so you you might, uh, a little, a little, little science. Please do, but before okay. I, before you okay. give us
1: that, I want to make sure that you people understood what uh, Professor Brown just said. It's not that we're not advocating this wind for a solution, right. it's just in the timescale that we're talking about and some of the sort of logistics of it, it doesn't make sense for the goals set out in Georgia drawdown. Now give us your science geek out here.
0: <laughs> okay. I just wanted to mention that um, the power you get from a wind turbine is a function of the Um, Speed of the wind to the third power. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the higher you get, the more wind typically you can find. We have to get to very high hub heights in Georgia in order to find sufficient wind. Right. So until the mechanics and the transport of large pieces of infrastructure can be made more um, affordable and doable, we don't think wind will be built. Right. So that's this decade. Exactly. And I just yeah. want to make don't sure we think. clarify
1: that. And thank you for that lovely geek out, because the geekier, the better on this podcast. That's why we call it that. We don't have to simplify things down here, because we've found that our listeners listen in because they want to dig deep into our world. Uh, food systems, land use, um, anything there that might say, oh, p- make people go, oh, wow.
0: Plant-rich diet, of uh-huh. course. Yes. And waste, reducing food waste. Those yes. are two really big options that we all can have an impact on. Yeah. yeah.
1: What about this group, this working group that I'm familiar with that called Beyond Carbon?
0: What's yeah. going on with that yeah. working group? Yeah. So we engaged the business college at uh, Georgia Tech, which has a sustainability center, which, again, the Racy Anderson Foundation has helped to uh, get up and running. They're interested in uh, sustainable business, and we asked them to look at the Um, health, the equity, environment, and uh, economic impacts of all of these 20 or so solutions we'll be looking at. So we'll be back to asking, are there other benefits or other costs that uh, would make them more or less feasible? Because we want these to be Obvious winners. We think we've picked some really great winners, but now we have to dig deep and make sure there aren't any hidden problems, or if perhaps there's a hidden treasure of other uh, benefits that we can highlight that means that these solutions not only reduce emissions but also create, say, a healthier environment, which right. is often the case. Right.
1: And and I want to emphasize that this is just the beginning of the journey. We're sort of, if you're talking about a flight, we're just sort of taking off here. We're, you know, we're not necessarily even fully in flight yet. And I guess that leads to my next question as we kind of progress toward the spring. What are your sort of next steps in the project? Because again, this is a one to two year project so far. Um, we, we anticipate further things happening in the future, but what's sort of your next short term to mid term goals
0: yeah so for each of the uh, short list of solutions for georgia we're looking at the um, achievable impact that they can have over the next decade so we're quantifying that Um, how many rooftops could you put solar panels on and what kind of electricity how much electricity would that generate Um, even digging deeper to ask the question well it might generate um, during daylight hours. What are you going to do when the power is not available other times of the day or on cloudy, rainy days? So then back up systems from uh, storage or you know, other devices and ways to make um, the solution work. Right. So we're looking a little bit at the um, market barriers and what could propel these, these forward and the policies that uh, might need to be looked at. But that's actually more of a focus for next year. Right now, we're trying to get a more of a handle on uh, how much of a benefit can each of these solutions provide to reduce the carbon foot print of the state of Georgia
1: now how are you, you going to roll out this information are you, you got anything planned any well, big, we do
0: we have some uh, interim lots of workshops and such as we and with experts and people around the, the state but on um, May 20th Georgia Tech is having a, a conference we'll have room for several hundred people so uh, interested viewers should get in touch if they'd like one of those seats uh, we'll be rolling out our um, sort of final results at that point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, so then, that's
1: the big reveal, if you will. If you ever watch reveal. these home, home uh, decorating shows on HGTV, <laughs> they always talk about the big reveal. That's the big reveal for Georgia Drawdown. <laughs> yes,
0: but not the end of Georgia Drawdown. No, no that, I, and that's, what, <laughs>
1: that's just yeah. sort of the, the next phase. <laughs>
0: this is at the time when we're going to get everyone excited about how much can be done and how we'll we'll all benefit from it.
1: Back on the Weather Geeks podcast, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Dr. Marilyn Brown from Georgia Tech, as we affectionately call it here, even though it's uh, formally the Georgia Institute of Technology. We have a big rivalry on the football field between (laughs) our two schools. But I can assure you that in the world of climate, there's quite a bit of collaboration on Georgia Drawdown, the Georgia Climate Project and many other things. So I, I wanted to ask you this question. Suppose you're some big industry person sitting around saying, what are those academics up to? Are they trying to tell me what I can and cannot do? Are they threatening our business models? What would you say to someone that's a little uncomfortable about this Georgia drawdown effort?
0: I would tell them that we're going to show them um, some of the opportunities that they can take advantage of going forward, that the... um, Many other countries and states and parts of the world are viewing climate as as a new um, a new undertaking and you know ways to spin off new divisions of their businesses. I, I think that I treat it as a as a, a good thing. I have heard uh, many CEOs in the traditional conventional industries that rely on fossil fuels say they feel threatened. But I do think that science and technology is going to come through you know, just in time to give them what they need to keep on going and deliver their services and and uh, uh, yeah continue yeah. To, to to make the green dollars in the sure. future yeah I
1: think that, yeah I think that's right I think there's plenty of opportunity economically uh, for the new energy economy whatever it looks like even if it 's not a green new deal um, I think there's uh, plenty of opportunity last question on Georgia drawdown before I pivot again. How do you scale this beyond Georgia? So we are starting to sort of move into the next phase, and I know there are real questions about what the next phase is for Georgia Drawdown, and we certainly candidly hope that there will be some um, uh, continued support and additional partners to come on board. But how does this then scale beyond Georgia in your view or in your vision?
0: Yeah, we're hoping that uh, this will become a model for other states. We know that other states are interested in learning about the details of the steps we've taken to get as far as we have. Uh, we're going to be documenting uh, the state approach that we've used, how we down-selected from 100 to 22, uh, documenting everything all along the way. Um, so I know that there's a branding process going on, that the Racy Anderson Foundation wants this to not just be a Georgia project, right? Right. to, to be a model to... To, make, to scale it up. And if you
1: want to find out more about Georgia Drawdown, there is a website currently active and I, as a part of these branding and marketing efforts, I, I believe they're going to even be more sort of forward-facing information resources available. Mm-hmm. But definitely check out the Georgia Drawdown website if you want more information. I think there's also a website that you're hosting as well at Georgia mm-hmm. Tech too. Mm-hmm. So yep. there's information out there. I want to pivot now because we have uh, the benefit of having um, one of the world's top experts here in this area. What else are you working on I'm, I I'm, I suspect uh, as a fellow colleague and professor this isn't the only project you have cooking right now what are some of the other interesting things that you have working on in your group
0: um, I have uh, just created a new master's program called oh, sustainable wow. just, energy oh, just and just environmental career, just creating new masters <laughs> programs no big deal <laughs> we rolled it out it's in its inaugural year okay. I'm very very pleased we've got about 20 students and I've actually um, attempted to make the Georgia Drawdown project sort of their um, focus for the year. So in many of the classes that they'll be taking, they are taking, uh, they're doing exercises and calculations and examining the Georgia Drawdown solutions. Now, I'm not alone. We have six or seven courses across UGA, Emory, Georgia Tech and Georgia State. Right. They're using Georgia Drawdown. Absolutely. So I know you wanted to hear about something different, but to be honest, this is rather absorbing oh, I'm me. <laughs> no, I'm, well, no, it's an
1: all-encompassing project. And so, um, but I, I guess one of the things that I would say about that, and I think it's something that universities across the nation, and specifically those here in the state of Georgia, um, we are literally moving beyond this model of just sort of academic knowledge generation and keeping it in the ivory tower. These are activities that are ongoing that matter, that affect local, state, national, international policy, uh, stakeholder interactions. And as you just heard from Professor Brown with this new uh, master's program, you're training the next generation. What what types of jobs would people that come out of that program, where would they work? NGOs, government, private sector, all of the above? And universities. Yep. And universities. Yep. No, I
0: do. I think there's a very large and growing uh, NGO suite of jobs Non-governmental organizations, Non-governmental for those of, you of you that are not familiar with that acronym. That's, that's right. And we have a lot of them in Georgia, but we have in the past spun off lots of uh, grad students that have important positions now all over the world in the clean tech uh, industry and also in government and I could name them the places, you know, U.S. Department of Energy, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and on and on, EPA and et cetera. So our students go, as yours do, into positions of leadership. So we our benefits are multiplied.
1: Yeah, I want to kind of pick your brain on the fact that you have worked in the federal government and you now work in academia. Uh, Just sort of over the span of your career, uh, what are the differences? Did you find any particular challenges? Challenges transitioning from the government to the academic sector, or, or just, what is your experience? I have a similar experience, by the way, spending twelve years of my career at NASA before coming to the University of Georgia. So,
0: it's interesting. So your one thought. of my comparisons will probably be very will resonate with you. Um, Oak Ridge National Laboratory is a billion dollar lab, and so when you take on a project. It's it's big. It's well resourced. <laughs> it has a big staff and a lot of support. Right. In a university, this, the budgets are much smaller. Yes. But you have the excitement and the uh, ambition and the energy of these young students. So it's a very different um, way to do research and they both have their pros and cons and I agree. happy to have had a chance to be in both places. Yeah, I,
1: I would agree with that at uh, NASA, a very mission driven agency. And so that mission driven agency had support, had uh, contractors and all types of support. Uh, you, you're basically doing the same types of things in the academic and federal lab environments, but with a different approach and resource base. I would agree with that as well. Uh, drawing to the close here with this podcast, but, Marilyn, what are your thoughts as we go forward? I mean, I wonder, this is a big picture pie in the sky type question at this point. You know what's going on with climate change, with extreme weather, with efforts, with all the politics and innuendo and trolling and various things. That, what are you, What is your view of the landscape going forward on climate change and what we need to do going forward?
0: We need to recognize that without... Further policy interventions, in which I would capitalize putting a price on carbon as the most important needed policy. So a carbon tax, A essential. carbon tax. And by the
1: way, that's something that a lot of conservatives have gotten
0: mm-hmm, behind. Mm-hmm. Without that, it's quite likely that our carbon emissions will not decline. We have a lot of opportunities ahead of us, so lots of technology, new technology to... Um, to deploy, but our economy is growing rapidly, and the low cost of our energy, which is, by the way, the um, envy of countries around the world, is uh, causing our in, in industry to boom. So, particularly uh, natural gas fracking, cheap gas, making chemicals, and our chemicals industry um, to, com- more competitive than ever, and our uh, low cost. I think I saw uh, um, our you know our gas prices, price of a barrel of oil, again extremely low. Uh, Fifty dollars yeah. a barrel, I think, was uh, just recently. I saw that yeah, as well. yeah, right. it's pretty eye opening. Yes, it is. So that's not a condition that's going to promote efficiency or uh, new technology. So without putting a price signal on the l- low cost low-carbon opportunities, we, we are going to be struggling going I, forward.
1: I, I was just remarking to my wife about that because I remember when grass prices were ridiculously high several years ago and you started to see a downshift from the big gigantic SUVs and large vehicles to smaller. But now I'm noticing the larger vehicles are coming back again. And that's, I guess, uh, driven by the market forces.
0: Yeah. The uh, latest Energy Information Administration forecasts for where we're going over the next several decades suggests that by the year 2050 we will be emitting 50 billion uh, tons of co2 in the u.s and that's what we did in the year 2010 and is forecast for the year 2020 wow so unless there's uh, some some type of a change we're not making
1: we we're Yeah. Well, there is one more question that you just sparked with that comment, because there are a lot of people out there and sometimes they're they're a little kind of I can sense there's a little skeptical sort of tinge in their voice about climate change. You know, like, Well, the United States is no longer the leading emitter um, or it's no longer sort of in the top, whatever. You've got China and India. Uh, what would you say to people that bring I mean, so the short answer is yes, that's true. Those countries emit a lot, too. But what would you say about sort of this notion that, the you know, the U.S. must play its part, but it's still not enough?
0: We do need to lead by example, of course. But also, we are um, big users of fossil fuels, and we emit a lot on a per capita basis. So 18 or so tons per person every year. Wow. And that's... Uh, maybe four times more than an individual in China and quite a bit more than someone in Africa. Yes.
1: So so that there there's a great answer there. So I mean I think when we see things like the Paris agreement and others we know that this has to be an international effort but you know Traditionally and historically, the U.S. leads on these issues, and a lot of times people follow. Uh, Dr. Brown, it's been great to talk to you, but I can't get out of here yet. The big thing that we must do before we end the podcast, it's now time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, great geologist, or weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Corey Davis. Corey is the Applied Climatologist and Resident Weather Geek for the North Carolina State Climate Office. He loves researching old events, especially severe storms. He's an excellent communicator and sometimes grown worthy pun connoisseur. We appreciate your work as a climatologist, Corey. If you or someone you know would be deserving candidate for the next Geek of the Week, check out the Weather Geek social media pages on Twitter and Facebook. Now, Dr. Brown, do you have any Twitter or Facebook pages or that you'd like to promote here before we get out of here? Uh, I do, but I can't remember you
0: know, them. <laughs> I tell you what, just go on Twitter and
1: search for Professor Marilyn Brown. I suspect you'll find her. And be sure to check out that Georgia Drawdown website, also the Drawdown website, the Ray C. Anderson Foundation, and also some of the things that they're really doing and a great uh, organization they're leading on environmental and climate issues. Dr. Brown, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
0: Thank you, Marshall, very much.